and welcome back to a new episode of Franklin Covey's newest podcast, C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller, where each week I have the enormous privilege of sitting on this stool and interviewing some of the greatest leaders of our generation, all from different levels in the C-Suite, some perhaps that have just moved in, or perhaps like today's guest has moved out of that role on several occasions and now is a professor and lecturer and thought leader and author and keynote speaker. Her name is Shelley Archambault. She is the author of the book, Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Teams. We don't often feature authors. We have another podcast for that. But because of her enormous experience in the C-suite, we thought that Shelley would be a great guest for each of you today on C-suite Conversations. Shelley, welcome to today's podcast. Well, thanks so much, Scott. I've been looking forward to it. We have as well. I mentioned as I was off air with you how jealous I am of the sunshine behind you because in many parts of the nation in this spring, it's been a fortunately wet and rainy spring for most of the nation, but it's nice to see a glimpse. You look very angelic with the sun coming behind you. So, <laughs> Well, thanks. I'm enjoying it too. I'm in Northern California and it's been raining like crazy here. So it's nice to have the sun. It is. It's great to talk with you today, Shelley. The book is a masterpiece. The book is really a, a treatise on your journey in life, lessons that you've learned that are insightful and replicable for other uh, students of leadership around the world, written for both men and women alike, uh, endorsed, of course, by Sheryl Sandberg and Reid Hoffman and Melly Hobsman. Uh, you travel in great circles. Shelley, for those last few people who may not be familiar with you as an author, a speaker, a coach, and a lecturer, and, and, and C-suite executive, would you maybe rewind a couple of decades and reorient all of our listeners and viewers to your own leadership journey? Oh, certainly. So, goodness, I'm one of those little strange in that I decided very early in life what I wanted to do. I was fortunate that I had a conversation with a guidance counselor back in junior high, or not junior high, junior year of high school. And she asked me, do I want to go to college? And my family, the answer was yes. My father didn't have a college degree. Mom was a stay-at-home mom. And it was all about going to college and getting an education. But then she said, what do you want to do after college? And I was like, I, I don't know. All I know is I want to keep the thermostat at 72 degrees in the wintertime. I want to be able to eat out in restaurants and travel. Those were all things that I couldn't do. And You're speaking my language. Chuckled, You're speaking my language. Keep going. <laughs> Good. So after she chuckled a little bit, she said, well, what do you like to do? And I give her a ton of credit for this because I said, oh, that's easy. I like clubs. I'm in everything, American Field Service, French Club, National Honor Society. And I like to run them. I'm even a Girl Scout, but like, don't tell anybody because it's not cool. Um, and she said, well, you know, clubs are like business. You pull people together and you get things done. And I said, perfect. I'm going to go into business. And I like leading clubs. And when I looked, the people who led businesses were called CEOs. So as a 16-year-old, I decided I wanted to be a CEO. <laughs> I had no idea what that actually meant, but it was a goal. And I was a very goal-oriented person. So I said, all right. And I basically then put a plan in place to become a CEO. I went to Wharton. I got into tech because that's a growing industry. And I heard you pick growing industries and they never have enough people. So therefore, companies are able to move you farther faster if you're good at what you do. So I joined IBM back in the early 80s, back when IBM was kind of the Google you know, um, of its day. And I spent 14 years at IBM, rising through the ranks, uh, got to the point where there was no one higher than me in the company that looked like me. I was running a multi-billion dollar uh, division over in Asia Pacific and decided that unfortunately, ah, didn't think I was actually going to have a chance to truly compete for CEO, even though my was just two steps down. My boss reported to Lou Gerstner. 
So I said, you know what? I want to be a CEO. It doesn't have to be here. And um, made the move to Blockbuster, become president of Blockbuster.com. And after it became clear that mm, they really didn't have the vision for the future, I worked my way to Silicon Valley, where I was the chief marketing officer and EVP of sales at two public companies, and then got the opportunity to be CEO of what became MetricStream. At the time, a struggling company that we turned around and grew into market leader over the course of 15 years. And now I serve on boards and do all the things you talked about, Scott. <laughs> Shelly, it's actually a wonderful journey. You said something I think is important to revisit. You said that there was no one hired at IBM that looked like you. Obviously, um, uh, not being Caucasian, you'd risen to the top of the ranks. Right. Actually, what I meant, I didn't, I didn't say hired. I meant hire. I, I, sorry, I hire. I, I meant hire. Yeah, yeah sorry. Okay. Some of the time. I heard you <laughs> right. I recapped it wrong. The reason I mentioned that is because in your book, um, Unapologetically Ambitious, you are very vulnerable about the role that your race played in your upbringing. Your father was a, an employee of IBM. He was a hardworking, great model to your family. You followed his path into IBM, but you were raised in the late 60s when civil unrest and racism and the Ku Klux Klan were an everyday reminder in your life about where certain people grossly thought your place was. And in fact, you wrote in the book about a particular experience as a young girl that I can't help but think had an imprint on you in terms of your identity. You wrote it in, in very visceral language, language that quite frankly, I'm gonna invite you to share however you'd like, but when I read your book in preparation for this interview several months ago, it has stayed with me because I think it just reminds me the kind of human, the kind of citizen, the kind of father, leader that I wanna be, nothing like the people that were um, verbally attacking you, take that, recap that however you feel comfortable. Absolutely, so you have to roll back. I was in the first, second grade, um, actually first, second, second semester, if you will, of first grade, uh, when my family moved to a suburb of Los Angeles, but it was a far out suburb and um, in the San Fernando Valley area. Um, and at the school, I was not only the only black girl in my class, but I was like the only black girl in the school. Um, and because of the racial strife that you talked about that was going on, people didn't treat me very well. And I had to walk to school every day along a really busy road. There was a divider, but it was a very busy road, lots of traffic going back and forth. And here I am, picture me, you know, I'm six, seven years old. I'm walking, carrying my lunchbox, because you did back then, right? You had your little books and the whole bit, walking along and people driving by on this busy road would yell horrific things at me. They'd yell things like, little nigger girl, right? Go back to the jungle where you came from, blah, blah, blah. They'd yell terrible, terrible things at me. And here I am. I mean, I'm, I'm just six, seven years old, right? And then at school, you know, kids would trip me and tease me. And I even had boys in my class beat me up on the walking home from school. I mean, it was, it was not a good experience. So I learned very early, Scott, that the odds were just not in my favor. And what it did was it made me become really intentional because, you know, you come home and you complain. It's like, mom, mom, you know, this happened. Either I didn't get something or somebody treated me badly or whatever, you know, mom, mom, this happened, that happened. It's not fair. And she just, you know, instead of just grabbing me and saying, oh, Shelly, it'll be okay. You know, it's all right, blah, blah, blah. She really didn't. She'd give me a hug, but she'd say, Shelly, life's not fair. And you're like, what? I mean, as a kid, 
you know, you have a turn, I have a turn, you get a lollipop, I get a lollipop. Life is supposed to be fair. No, it was very clear. It was almost drummed into me. Life is not fair. So what are you going to do about it? And the piece that she added to that was you can't control what people do to you. You can't control what people say to you, all those ugly things when I would walk to school, but you can control how you respond. So whatever you do, do not let them win. And they win when they make you feel badly about yourself or they make you do something that you don't wanna do or not do something that you do wanna do. So you control your actions. And frankly, that was really the foundation for how I've approached life in that the odds aren't in my favor. So I've always got to be doing things and taking steps to improve my odds, to make it more likely that I can get the things that I want in life. Because I knew if I just did what everybody else did, I probably wasn't going to get much. Shelly, I'm emotional listening to that story because the first half of that is repugnant and reprehensible. And I can't even, I can't, not only can I not relate to that, I can't even fathom that happening to someone that I know or love or care about, or for that matter, don't. And so just on air here, I want you and, and other people that may have um, experienced similar despicable behavior to know that my three sons would never tolerate that. And my three sons that are 8, 10, and 11, we live here in Salt Lake City, not a very diverse, like, in fact, not diverse at all, Salt Lake City. <laughs> that my three sons would stop that in its tracks. And so hopefully you and other people of color are experiencing greater voice and greater respect, the same respect everyone deserves. I appreciate the vulnerability and also the forthrightness with which you shared that story because your mom is a badass and she gave you great advice and I appreciate all you've done to bring voice to millions of others. You've written about also the role that imposter syndrome has played in your own career and in others. And it's not a concept, I'm very familiar with the term, it's not a concept that I'm intimately familiar with because I have a pretty big ego myself and I'm sure I was more of an imposter than I gave myself credit for. But do you see a connection between how you were treated as a minority in your youth and the 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 confidence, the resilience your parents instilled in you and how imposter syndrome played perhaps less of a role as you grew into an executive in the tech industry. Absolutely. I do believe that for many of us that suffer from imposter syndrome, oh, by the way, studies show that the majority of people do at some point or another, but a lot of it for us stems from things that happened to us early on that undermined our confidence that made us question who we are, whether we belong, all those things. So then when we face situations, you know, that are new and are different, we doubt ourselves. You know, so imposter syndrome, for those that have not experienced it, right? Imposter syndrome, it's that little voice. It's that little voice that creeps into your head when something new happens. You get a new opportunity, a a promotion opportunity. You're asked to speak. You're asked to join a new group, right? Something new. And that little voice creeps up and says, you're not as smart as they think you are. Wait till they figure out that you don't know as much as they think you know. What makes you think you belong? How are you possibly going to hold your own? It's that voice that is basically setting all these seeds of doubt in your mind that makes you hesitate. Makes, for some people, it doesn't allow them to move forward, right? It's that little voice. 
well, that's kind of the imposter syndrome. And I believe the voice comes from past experience when people either told you you didn't belong over and over and over again, questioned or doubted or took assumptions about you, about your capabilities, about your attentions. So that yes, women suffer more imposter syndrome than men and women of color suffer it the most. And I absolutely believe it comes from the life experience we have as we grow up through the um, through the environment in which we face. And as you get more mature and as you have more experience and as you have more um, success and proved yourself that you can do things, I think it declines. But for some people, like for myself, believe it or not, I still have it from time to time, which is totally ridiculous. Right. Uh, thanks for kind of reminding everybody how ridiculous but ever-present it is and kind of where, what it's rooted in, because the more you understand kind of why it's there, probably from early childhood, the more you can hopefully nip it in the bud. Shelly, you've had a remarkable career. You've lived around the world. You've had virtually every position up the ladder, <laughs> up the letterhead in organizations, um, including in sales as well. Uh, like you, I served as the chief marketing officer of the Franklin Covey Company, a global public company, a little smaller than IBM, but nonetheless, a uh, global brand. And I often will now in retrospect laugh, you know what, I'm not sure I knew jack about marketing. But the fact <laughs> is, I'd spent, I'd spent 15 years in sales in the company. So I right. knew what the whole sales engine was struggling with and how much pressure was on them. And I think one of the reasons why I spent 10 years as the CMO, three times the national average for public company CMOs was because my, my empathy for the sales. I understood the business engine of the company and I was creative enough to lead a team of 50 plus genius marketers. I mention that because I'd like you to comment on how important is it do you think to have a sales background to make it into the C-suite and to what extent does that maybe provide you some knowledge or learning experience you wouldn't have otherwise had you come up only in operations or through finance or maybe through engineering? Take that wherever you'd like it to go. I am so glad you asked me that question because I tell people all the time, I think everyone should have a stint in sales. The reason I started in sales was I did the research. So here I was, I was at Wharton and I had a goal. My goal was I was gonna join IBM and I wanted to be CEO of IBM. So I did, how do I improve my odds? You have to do the research. What has to be true for me to become CEO? And all the CEOs at IBM started out in sales. So I didn't know why that was important, but I figured that was the path to power. So I started out in sales at IBM. And I have to tell you, Scott, my friends at Wharton thought I was nuts. Nobody comes out of Wharton and does sales of computers. No, you go off to be an investment banker on Wall Street, an international financial analyst, a Procter & Gamble product manager. I mean, right, all these sexy, cool things and I'm gonna go sell computers? What's wrong with me? But again, I was following the research, but I will tell you what I, what I tell everybody. To this day, I use more of the skills that I learned as a salesperson than any other role I've had in my career. Because you learn everything. You learn that a, a no is not a no. It just means something's not right. So it gives you the opportunity to figure out what's wrong and fix it. Timing, offering terms, right? Whatever it might be. You learn that if getting a final no, meaning nope, you'll never be able to solve my problem, is not the end of the world. You learn to ask for the order. You learn to understand where the power is in the room. You understand how to negotiate so there's win-wins. You learn, I mean, over and over and over again, you learn so much that you need to actually be successful as a leader. 
beautifully said, in my day job, I'm actually a talent literary and speaking agent. And yesterday we had a, a large, uh, well-known author who's writing a journal. And this one particular publisher had made some overtures. They wanted to publish the journal. And when they met, they decided not to. But not to now. Like, they needed like five questions answered. And I remember thinking yesterday, it's actually a gift to me because now we're going to have a better path to success than had they said yes and led us down a path of unsuccess or lack of sales. I, I, I do think to the extent I've had any success in my C-suite career, it's all related to the 30 quarters I had as a salesperson, carrying a bag, making, missing, keeping commitments, being humbled, being lauded for the success of, you know, sales is tough, but it, it really toughened me up to understand what is the engine behind, you know, all organizations. I appreciate your evangelization on, I do too also think that every person should have a career in sales. The current CEO of Franklin Covey, Paul Walker, he started as what we call an inside business partner, basically a an assistant to a salesperson, setting appointments, helping you know sure. keep their revenue commitments, and he rose up through the ranks, and he is now the CEO of the world's most influential leadership firm. I think a because of his character, but yeah. b because of his competence, understanding the lifeblood of every organization is revenue, whether you're for profit or not for profit. Right, nothing gets done if there's no revenue. Exactly, exactly right. Shelly, let's pivot a little bit. You did a stint, more than a stint, but compared to IBM at Blockbuster.com, at Blockbuster. And I know now mm -hmm. it's easy to talk about the Blockbuster Netflix thing, and it's everybody's, you know, whipping boy. Um, rewind a couple of decades, and what did you learn from the demise of Blockbuster? You hear all kinds of, you know, convenient stories that you had a chance to buy Netflix or whatever. You know, all the cliche stuff put aside. What are some of the innovative, agile, nimble lessons you learned, maybe from lack of executing on them as a culture, that people can actually apply in their careers now. What are some of the things you learned about the downside of Blockbuster's demise that everybody can kind of have in their Jiminy Cricket conscience, make sure they don't repeat that in their own company, their own industry, their own career? Right. Well, actually, to put it in context, let me just highlight something that you know, Blockbuster did really well. And this is before the whole the Netflix thing. Right. They changed the whole model right. on video rental. And the way they did that was back to how do you create a win-win? The model before was you bought, you know, the videos, the tapes, you know, et cetera, from the studios, and then you would rent them out. But you did it kind of one by one. I rent this and I rent it out. I rent this and rent it out. The challenge you have is inventory, inventory management. So they changed the model. They went and negotiated with the studios, listen, Instead of one-to-one -one, and my paying you up front and passing it off, why don't I just share in the overall revenue? So it doesn't matter how many I have, right, or how many copies I make. I give you a percent of the revenue. And what that did was it allowed significant growth to happen in that space. Um, so they really were very innovative. Here's what happens. Most companies are very innovative at some point, right? That's how you become a company because you have to bring a new market, a new product, a new offering, a new service, a new something to market in order to actually grow and be established. So most companies start very innovative. What happened to Blockbuster is then you start making money and you start being really successful. And I think many companies start to rest a bit on their laurels. Um, and forget that they have to continue to innovate and continue to take those big risks. So, you know, history is littered, not just with Blockbuster passing Netflix, IBM passed on Microsoft. I mean, Xerox, Xerox, IBM passed on Xerox. There are a lot of companies that wouldn't exist today if other companies at the time 
had actually taken a risk, made an investment, really pushed on the innovation piece. So the real message is you have to keep innovating. You've got to keep taking risks. And the whole notion of once, you know, success, unfortunately, doesn't always beget success. So a lot of times success kind of brings filters to your eyes because it becomes how do I maintain my success versus how do I actually go get the next level of success? Shelly, I want you to put on your futurist hat. I literally had the privilege an hour ago of being on a set about 15 feet that way where I interviewed Seth Godin. Everyone knows Seth Godin as the leadership expert, author, futurist, iconoclast. And as I was interviewing Seth on a new book he's releasing, I said something that ended up being kind of funny. And it was, hey, Seth, the world is going to look different eight years from now. What skills do you think my three sons should be learning? And he said, no, the world's going to look unrecognizable six months from now, not eight years from now. You know, you speak around the nation. You consult with companies. You teach. You're a lecturer. You're a best-selling author. For all of the leaders that are listening and watching today and all the parents that are trying to figure out where is the puck going, where is the puck going on leadership competency? on ultimate competitive advantage, on culture, on the, on the graduates of Wharton or any school or community college, can you kind of fast forward six, eight, 10, 12, X number of months, what do you want people to know about what is changing, what's not going back, what is here to stay, what will be unrecognizable? It's a, I know it's a really broad question. You can take it wherever you want to. I want you to be a little bit of a Nostradamus and a futurist. What do you want everyone listening and watching today to know what they should be doing to be super relevant six months, nine months, six years from now? Yeah, I think the skills that are going to be the most in demand are those that demonstrate that you are not only analytical and able to connect, if you will, dots, information, et cetera, and draw conclusions, um, but that you actually can inspire, connect, and frankly care about people. Because as we become more, whether it's AI, the whole bit, but leveraging more and more technology and more and more technology, a lot of people are gonna have choices on how they wanna work, where they wanna work, what they wanna do. And it's gonna become more important that leaders create an environment in which people want to work. Because here's what's happening. We're gonna end up, you know, right? We're gonna end up with continued skill and labor shortages. Why is that? Well, we're facing it now, but the reason we're gonna see it continue is because the world work population is actually shrinking. You know, in our, in our place, we have the baby boomers gen generation is definitely growing and moving towards retirement, but we are actually not having as many kids, and this is global, this is not just the US, we're just not having as many kids. Many first world countries aren't even replacing themselves, so their populations are actually in decline. We're still close, but based upon where things are going, who knows if we're going to be able to hold steady. So when you have population that's actually shrinking, labor is going to become harder and harder to get, which means we have to create environments in which they want to work. So as leaders, we've got to get better at it. It's not just a matter of I've got a job and I've got a salary and I've got benefits. It's going to be, am I creating an environment in which people feel they can grow, thrive, and really make a difference? So leadership is definitely going to change from a skill set standpoint for those kids. To me, it's all about taking on subjects and learnings and things that really focus on how to analyze, 
how to communicate, um, and how to leverage the technologies out there. I don't think it's as important to become the programmer as it is to understand how technology can be harnessed to be able to be leveraged in many different ways as we go forward. Shelly nicely said, your book is unapologetically ambitious. In many ways, it's sort of one part uh, riveting memoir and two, kind of a how-to on how to achieve what the reader wants to achieve in their own life from your own accomplishments and setbacks. I especially liked chapter 24. By the way, I love how your book is written. Fast, easy, breezy, short, three or four page chapters. Thank you for not writing a 800 word book. But I found this chapter especially relevant because chapter 24, I won't quiz you on it, is tell people what you want. Yes. And this is, you know, people can't help you. They don't know how to help you. People can't read your mind. But I want you to answer this question a little bit differently. People who get good at telling others what they want often get branded as um, self-serving or overly ambitious or focused on what they need, and they get a certain moniker, reputation around maybe being a, sometimes a bull, a, a, a bull in a china shop. My point is, what do you see as sort of the nexus between being clear on what you want and telling others what it is you want and making sure they see that as not self-serving or overly demanding, but that it's something they want to help you do because they also see the benefit of that helping the organization or even them. That's a, it's a delicate, it's a delicate communication style and brand brand mindfulness, is it not? Oh, absolutely is. So yes, it is absolutely important to tell people what you want because if they don't know what you want, they can't help you. But I don't mean walk around and say, hey, hey, I want this, I want that, give me over here, right here, please. I mean, nobody wants to work with those kinds of people. That's not what I mean. What I mean is you wanna do it in the right way. It's all about the how. So for instance, let's say you're a, um, you're a director in a company and you're, you want to become a vice president, right? So what you do is you don't go to your boss and say, hey, I wanna become a vice president, so what's the path, right? I mean, that, that doesn't work. Instead, when you're having a conversation, you say something like, you know, I aspire one day to be a vice president. Do you have any advice for me on maybe a skills that I ought to be building or an experience I ought to have? You know, you, you, you do it, I call it a palms up kind of approach, which means you tell people what you want, but you do it in a way in which you're actually asking for their perspective. You could say, you know, one day I'd like to run a company. Do you think I have the potential to do that, right? So it's all about the how. So it's not a demand, it is a, here's what I would like to do. And it's always nice to say, or ask people for advice or perspective of whether or not it can be helpful. So that's definitely how I've approached it when I've gone through my overall career. The book is a extraordinary guide on how to build and strategically manage your own career. I love your talk, your, your, your creating and validating your plan, what do you want to be? At what time? What skills do you need? I, a strong endorser of the book. I'd like to finish our conversation today with uh, the things you've done in your career that are replicable. Perhaps they're not unique to your personality or your skill set or clearly your academic success you've had. What are some things you've done that you would advise others on their way to the C-suite or perhaps even in the C-suite and want to stay there? Because we see a lot of imploding <laughs> happening there. What are some things you would send us off with to say, do these three or four things and you're going to have a great career, skill set agnostic? 
Right. So skill set agnostic, I would say the number one thing is take ownership for your career. Take ownership for your career. I mean, you would never spend, you know, $5,000 for an airline ticket, pack your bags, put the dog in the kennel, let folks know you're going to be going away for a while, head to the airport, strap in that seatbelt, and then look at the pilot and say, so where are we going anyway? Right. But people do that with their careers all the time. They work, 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 and wait for somebody to tap them on the shoulder and say, oh, you can do this now. Okay, tap, tap, you can you can do that now. No, it's your career. So you should spend more time planning your career than you do planning a vacation. And most people don't. So be strategic about what you're doing and then be intentional. Um, the second thing I tell people to do in terms of how to do that is set goals Short-term, long-term, however far you can plan out. Set a goal. Figure out what needs to be true for you to achieve it, which means do the research like I did with the IBM to understand that, hey, every single CEO started out in sales. Maybe I should do that. So do the research. What has to be true for you to actually achieve that goal? Then put a plan in place. And I'll tell you, Scott, a lot of people set goals. Some people put plans in place, but very few people make decisions every day consistent with their plan. And that's where the power lies. Because when you do that, you can make yourself lucky because you've planned for it, you've taken steps in hopes that your plan would work. And then when it does, you're actually ready to take advantage of it. So those are two things, own your career and then be intentional about goals, plans and making decisions every day. Shelly, last question, you had very clearly unapologetically, ambitiously set your sights on wanting to be the CEO of IBM. You write about it in the book. When you realized you weren't going to achieve that goal, what was the thought process emotionally, logistically, strategically, where you realized, okay, that's not going to happen, and so now I need to pivot to something else? I mean, I'm guessing in many ways it was uh, a disappointment. It was uh, some humbling. But it also, you kind of regalvanized and pivoted very clearly. Any advice you would give on the, 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 the learning process of when a, a longtime goal of yours was not going to be realized, how you summoned the maturity and the, and the emotional agility to pivot off that and, 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 and push to something else? Absolutely. So first, you know, my goal was to become a CEO and then I picked IBM to become CEO of IBM. So when I got to the point where I realized so too many things were happening, not happening, et cetera, I'm like, you know, I don't think I'm really going to get the opportunity to truly compete. I was heartbroken. You asked me how I felt? I was heartbroken. I mean, I, I had given IBM everything. I felt if you cut me, I bled IBM blue. I moved all over the world for this company. Most of my friends were IBMers because when you move all the time, the people you know consistently are people at work. So IBM was like everything. And all of a sudden, I'm like not gonna be able to get what I want here. So I'm gonna have to leave? Ah, oh, it was gut-wrenching. And you know where you find emotional agility? I find it through cheerleaders. You know, I've, I've been fortunate and I, I have people in my life who remind me, because when you sit there and come back and say, oh my God, I'm not gonna be able to achieve this, right? So am I not the person? Maybe I'm not that great, that imposter syndrome, right? Peace creeps up. You need people around you who are saying, oh yes, you are, look what you've done. You know, they remind you and kind of keep you motivated. So that, that helps a lot. But back to being driven, 
I was driven. I worked so hard. I wanted to be a CEO. So if it wasn't going to be at IBM, then I'm going to have to figure out how to do it somewhere else. And that for the plan. And I did the research again. And a lot of people that leave IBM and go straight to becoming CEOs of other companies, especially smaller companies, because that's what I decided I wanted to do, stumble a time or two. As a Black female, I didn't think I had the strikes at bat, as many strikes at bat. So it's all about how do I improve my odds? So I decided, okay, I'm not going to go straight to CEO. I want to go get jobs at the table. So a job that reports to the CEO so I can learn what is so different. You know, a job that gets exposure to the board so I can learn what's so different and then go after my CEO job with better odds of success. Shelly Archambault, your book is Unapologetically Ambitious. Take risks, break barriers, and create success on your own terms. Tell us what's next for you. What's, what's happening in your world? What are you working on? What are you excited about? What are you focused on? Oh, thanks. So I really enjoy, I serve on public boards as well as uh, some nonprofit, national nonprofit boards. I really enjoy governance. I really enjoy helping to support companies and, and CEOs as they build out the overall strategy, et cetera. Uh, what am I excited about? I spend a lot of my time trying to inspire um, and motivate and encourage people to be able to go after their ambitions. Because Scott, I find that many people don't get the opportunity to contribute to even 50, 60% of their capabilities. Mm. And I think that's ridiculous. If we could get the majority of Americans to the, the opportunity to be able to contribute to 75% of their capability, this country would be amazing. So I speak a lot, I mentor, I do a lot of things to try to actually share what I've learned and to encourage people that they can do it too. Because what people aren't told, and especially when you're young, right? Young adults, et cetera, you're not told that life is hard. And it is hard, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that it's impossible. So when it gets hard, don't look around and say, well, it's easy for everybody else, it's hard for me, so maybe I'm not cut out for it. Yes, you are, just go get more help. That's the key. The key in life I've found is ask for help. Most people are willing to help you if asked in the right way because no one creates anything of significance all by themselves, no one. So don't think you're gonna be the first one on the planet. That was fire right there. You're doing a great job because I've had a pretty good run and you've inspired me to keep going. Shelly, thanks for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. It's been great to have you been featured on this podcast. Thank you very much, Scott. I've enjoyed it as well. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite.